This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Needless suffering, a warning from Dr. Anthony Fauci on the dangers of reopening too fast. Not fast enough, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan and what this might mean for economic recovery and COVID clusters. Wuhan launches a mass testing drive as reopening risks are laid bare. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, wherever you are joining us from in the world. It's great to be back with you. Let me give you a sense of what's coming up in the show today. As you heard there, the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve will be joining to give his take on economic recovery and what more financial support might be needed. Plus, at a time of massive government spending and therefore currency printing, what alternative assets like Bitcoin, for example, might offer to investors for now. Here's a look at the global market picture. Europe is pretty mixed, as you can see, following a weak session in Asia. Hong Kong shares, in fact, were hit the hardest, down by some one and a half percent. I gave you a hint there in terms of regional risks and the amid the COVID outbreak. In the meanwhile, uh, U.S. futures are warming up slowly here following a pretty muted finish for the Dow and for the S&P in yesterday's trading session. The Nasdaq, though, the tech heavy sector continues to outperform. That's now up, up two and a half percent year to date. Yes, you heard me right. The divergence here, I think, is key. A small handful of big tech names have led the charge higher, as you can see. If you look at the median stock, though, in the S&P 500, it's still down some 25 percent from recent highs. We call that market breadth and the lack of that breadth remains a concern to me, certainly. We're relying on a small number of stocks to keep us at these levels in aggregate. In that vein, Goldman Sachs now warning that the stock market rally has gone too far too fast. They're saying we could see an 18% pullback over the next three months as the challenges of reopening become clearer. It's a challenge that Dr. Anthony Fauci is likely to confirm on Capitol Hill in the next hour. The White House's top coronavirus expert will reportedly warn against restarting the U.S. economy too quickly, even as states begin to reopen in the absence of widespread testing. And that's where we begin the drivers with Dr. Fauci's testimony. Joe Johns joins us from the White House. Joe, we've had a hint, I think, from the New York Times today on just what we're expecting from Dr. Fauci. But do we get a different tone than perhaps we normally hear, which is perhaps more reserved when he's in front of the president and wary to avoid um, challenging the president, I think, in terms of views here? Well, he certainly has a way of walking a line, doesn't he? He seems to balance contradicting the president with trying to get information out. But this is going to be a very interesting hearing, uh, number one, for the reason that we're going to have 
witnesses testifying remotely, including Dr. Fauci before the Senate Health Committee. And what we've been able to discern from a variety of sources is that uh, Fauci essentially is going to be speaking not just to, to the public here in the United States, not just the United States Senate, but also to the governors of the states that are trying to unlock their economies right now and doing so at quite a clip. His message is doing that too soon will risk needless death and suffering. Uh, this statement he gave to the New York Times in the form of an email that says, if we skip over the checkpoints, we risk the danger of multiple outbreaks throughout the country. This will not only result in needless suffering and death, but would actually set us back on our quest to return to normal. He'll be testifying with some others who are also in quarantine, including the director of the, um, uh, the disease control unit out of Atlanta, also the Food and Drug Administration, and uh, an assistant secretary of Health and Human Services. No hint really at all, by the way, Julia, in the prepared text from these uh, myriad number of officials uh, as to what Fauci is going to say if it is along the same lines of what he wrote to the reporter at the New York Times. It's interesting, Joe, because you can't help but feel like it's a case of trying to slam the barn doors after the horses have bolted. More and more states continue to open up, irrespective, I think, of the, the challenges here that we simply don't have enough testing state by state, that we're not doing the kind of tracing that we see happening in other nations around the world. What good does this do, perhaps, other than frighten people that we know in aggregate are cautious of how quickly things are opening up as much as we're all frustrated with with lockdown measures. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to try to bring those two ideas into comportment, if you will. I can tell you also looking at some of the statements that they've submitted, this testing issue is going to be a real one because, as you know, just last night in the Rose Garden, uh, the president of the United States once again repeated that line he's had before anyone who wants a test can get one. The doctors, the scientists have been making it very clear that people who need tests in the United States, in other words, they have a medical necessity because of exposure or because of illness or because of symptoms, uh, those people uh, are more likely to get a test if they need one, but as far as the general public, not so much. And then it goes, of course, back to that question of confidence in the U.S. and uh, who needs to get tested and what else needs to be done in order to restart the economy and to let businesses as well as the general public feel as though uh, they can go back to some semblance of normalcy. Yeah, the challenges of protecting workers and consumers here, we're just not there yet. Joe Johns at the White House, so we look ahead to that testimony. Thank you so much for that. Meanwhile, a Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, one of those pushing for a rapid reopening, he restarted production at the company's California plant, despite local officials saying it should remain closed. Dan Simons reports. A packed parking lot at Tesla's assembly plant in Fremont, California as employees headed back to work at the direction of their CEO. Elon Musk tweeting on Monday, Tesla is restarting production today against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. I present to you the Cybertruck. Musk has been fiercely critical of the stay-at-home orders, calling them fascist 
and over the weekend in another tweet said Tesla will now move its headquarters and future programs to Texas or Nevada immediately. If we retain Fremont manufacturing activity at all, it will depend on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in California. In response, one state lawmaker saying, F Elon Musk. First of all, I appreciate Elon. I Governor appreciate Gavin Newsom praised Musk in April after the CEO said he helped secure more than 1,000 ventilators, though the gift became a subject of contention as some hospitals reported receiving different devices that help with sleep apnea. On Monday, Newsom tried to strike a delicate balance in the latest dust-up. After all, Tesla employs more than 10,000 workers at the plant. Manufacturing broadly uh, throughout the state of California uh, is no longer uh, restricted with modifications. But Newsom also acknowledging that counties have the ability to make independent decisions. Musk filed suit Saturday against Alameda County after the automaker was warned bringing workers back would violate its rules. Alameda County says it is working with Tesla to implement a safety plan that allows for reopening while protecting workers. If you don't make stuff, there's no stuff. Musk telling podcaster Joe Rogan last week that in order to get products on the shelves, in his case, cars in the showroom, the economy has to open up. My opinion is if, if, if somebody wants to stay home, they should stay home. And if somebody doesn't want to stay home, they should not be compelled to stay home. That's my opinion. And as Tesla employees now leave their homes to go back to work, Musk is getting support from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. He's one of the biggest employers and manufacturers in California, and California should prioritize doing whatever they need to do to solve those health issues so that he can open quickly and safely where they're going to find as he's threatened he's moving his production to a different state. CNN's Dan Simon there. One thing's for clear, he has to protect his workers now because if he gets this wrong and people get sick, oh boy, the scrutiny. All right, let's move on clearly to that point. The challenges of reopening amid a pandemic laid bare in Wuhan, China, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. The city's now planning to test all residents after new cases emerged over the weekend. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, this just encapsulating, I think, all the challenges that we were just discussing in the United States and beyond laid bare in Wuhan. It's not just Wuhan where China's taking action either. No, it's not. We're watching China deal with two relatively small outbreaks of, in total, only a couple dozen confirmed cases of coronavirus. But the seriousness with which the national and uh, provincial authorities, municipal authorities are taking this really uh, speaks volumes. In the case of Wuhan, that city that back in December where the coronavirus was first really discovered and identified and then it just exploded into the first real epicenter that the planet saw and then it kind of raced on from there. Well, the city had succeeded in keeping the coronavirus cases down. No new cases detected for about a month. High school seniors had gone back to school last week and then over the weekend, six new cases discovered. So city authorities have issued an emergency notice on Monday of this week announcing what they describe as a, quote, 10-day battle. And they aim to test, presumably, more than 10 million residents of that city for the coronavirus in a 10-day period. We do not know when that will begin. 
But that suggests that they are not fooling around. Even six confirmed cases of coronavirus are being treated with deadly seriousness. I mean, this just shows you what it takes and the kind of response, again, that we're seeing elsewhere in the world, Ivan. And it, it's not just about the testing. It's about tracing people as well. Who are your contacts? And do they now need to be quarantined or isolated too? That's how you lock this down. It is. And it's not just Wuhan that China is dealing with. There's another city in Jilin province that's on the border with Russia and North Korea. And there's a city there called Shulan. And over the weekend, uh, a number of cases were identified there as well. And epidemiologists with the Chinese Center for Disease Control have traced the possible source of this to a 45-year-old woman who reportedly worked in the laundry section of a public security bureau in that city. And so there, they've done a complete lockdown this week. And we're only talking about 14 confirmed cases in two days. But again, it goes to the seriousness with which the Chinese authorities are responding to these cases. And these are numbers that, frankly, most American cities and towns would wish to have, uh, given the just explosion of cases and the fact that confirmed number of cases in the U.S. vastly outnumbers the confirmed cases of coronavirus in China. That is, if we can really trust the official statistics coming out of China. Absolutely. And that is a great point to make. But to your bigger point here, there are so many lessons that need to be learned in response, in reaction and comparative numbers and the reaction even those small numbers gets. Ivan Watson, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. To uh, Saudi Aramco now, the oil giant seeing profits slide some 25% over the last quarter. This comes amid the coronavirus outbreak and the price war with Russia that sent the price of a barrel of oil into freefall. John Defterius joins me now. John, when I look at these numbers, you get a sense of the, the reaction function that we've seen in terms of the austerity measures coming from the kingdom. But as bad as it is, we know current quarter will likely be much worse. Talk us through the details here. That is, yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it, Julia. And considering the state of play in the market right now, the bar was lowered uh, low for Aramco in Q1, and it didn't meet expectations. At 16.7, it's about a billion off of the estimates I was looking at, and they made $20 billion in this quarter uh, last year. And as you suggested here, because of the oil price war uh, and the uh, pressure that Saudi Arabia put on the market by adding production in April. It'll get worse in this quarter, and we'll see those results obviously coming uh, in July and August. But unlike ExxonMobil, for perspective here, it made money in the quarter, a lot of money, right? And the dividend's going to hold at $75 billion, something that Shell couldn't do. But it's not clear sailing here in the Middle East by any stretch of the imagination. I was looking at it. The average price for Brent last year was $64 a barrel. We're hovering around 30. If we get away with $35 as an average price, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, the major producers will suffer. That's why we saw the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman put forward some draconian measures on the Monday that people are still talking about here. The VAT tripling, benefits cut, and now he has to revisit his major Vision 2030 projects like the futuristic city Neom, which he was hoping to spend a half a trillion dollars on, right? His elder brother, the respected minister of energy, Abdulaziz bin Salman, additional cut of a million barrels a day. Julia, I did the math. It's nearly five million barrels taken off the market. 
by Saudi Arabia and Saudi Aramco in a span of 45 days. It's extraordinary. 18-year low in production. That will hurt revenues. So the bottom line here is desperate times, tough decisions. And even Bernard Looney of BP was suggesting today, because of COVID-19, it's something you've tracked very carefully, it may have brought forward peak demand for oil. It may never go back again. And that's wow. very hard for the IOCs and a company the scale of Aramco. I mean, there's so much math to do here. And unfortunately, none of it really adds up, John. And that's yeah. the challenge. Um, great to have you with us. John Defterius there. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, an exclusive, the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve on First Move to discuss jobs and jump-starting economic recovery and track and trace. A look at how officials in Hong Kong are leveraging wristband technology to fight COVID-19. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. We're looking at a solidly higher open for U.S. stocks as we count down to that Senate testimony from Dr. Anthony Fauci on how best to reopen the U.S. economy. He's expected to recommend a cautious, go-slow approach to avoid a resurgence in cases. Investors perhaps also concerned that the way back will be a long and difficult one, too. The futures market appears to be pricing in a negative Fed funds rate by the end of the year, although you've got technical factors here to consider, too. In the meantime, the U.S. Federal Reserve is set to begin buying exchange-traded funds or ETFs that invest in corporate debt today. It's a key program intended to help the United States get through perilous times. Robert Kaplan joins us now in an exclusive interview here on First Move. He's the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve and a voting member of the Fed Policy Setting Committee. President Kaplan, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Just let's start by discussing the numerous measures that the Federal Reserve has taken and at breakneck speed. Are you comfortable that enough has been done, given what you're seeing for the U.S. economy at this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've done is uh, stabilize the markets, uh, uh, work on helping small and mid-sized businesses be able to have access to funds. Uh, most of what we do is lending, though. It's not, it's not grant making, it's lending. And so uh, it, it's intended to be a bridge to help businesses get through this period. And it needs to be complemented by fiscal stimulus and other uh, more grant-making activities, which are done by Congress and the Treasury. But yeah, I, I think we've, we've gotten where the financial markets are working relatively well during this period. You're echoing Jay Powell, um, who's said that, look, our responsibility here comes down to lending, not spending, to be specific. Are you suggesting that more help from Congress is required? Well, if we get to a peak unemployment rate, which we think we will of around 20 percent, and we end the year around a 10 percent unemployment rate, yeah, there may well need, need to be more fiscal stimulus in order to boost economic growth so that we can grind down that unemployment rate uh, and get closer to full employment. Yes, I, I think it will be necessary. You've suggested a 8 to 10 percent unemployment rate by the end of by the end of 2020. That's millions of jobs lost from where we were at the beginning of the year. It's millions of jobs gained from where we sit today. What drives that confidence based on real concerns about the risks of reopening and getting businesses back to work quickly 
when you've got the health crisis that we're still fighting at the same time? Yeah, so certain sectors will have an easier time reopening than others, and they'll hire workers back. There are other sectors, as you point out, that are very sensitive to health concerns. Restaurants, hotels, airlines, you know, a, a number of other sectors like that where they're going to be very slow and cautious to reopen and they're going to be more limited in how many workers they bring back. And even when they are up and running, they may decide they need fewer workers than they did before. So that's the dilemma. So the health concerns will have a big impact on the, on the rate of uh, job growth. And then there'll be structural changes in the economy, which were already happening before, which will be accelerated that also are going to affect this. You know, one of the big components of this is the consumer, whether it's confidence or spending power. When you look at the measures that have been taken, the boosted unemployment benefits, the extension of those, net-net, do you think overall uh, income levels for people in the United States will be equal to what they were last year, less than or perhaps higher than, based on the support that's been I mean, provided? So, I mean, there's been support provided to sustain people through this period, but the reality is if you have an 8 to 10% unemployment rate at the end of the year, you're going to have more job insecurity. Uh, it's going to have some downward effect on wages. You're going to have people that are out of the labor force that were previously in the labor force. And so the overall effect on incomes and consumer spending power has got to be negative, I would guess, which is why it's going to be critical to grind down that uh, headline unemployment rate. Talk to me about what further support the Federal Reserve might be able to provide here. Can we rule out negative interest rates at this moment and at any point in the future because it's a debate that keeps coming up? Yeah, I, I, I would be against negative interest rates. Uh, I think a number of others have spoken about this. Mm. And the reason for being against negative interest rates is uh, the impact it would have on our financial system, on intermediaries, on money market funds. Uh, I, I'm a skeptic as to whether negative interest rates would actually be helpful or whether the, the, the help would, be, would in fact be outweighed by the harm it would do to the financial sector. So I, I personally am not, not a fan or proponent of negative interest rates. I think we're gonna have to try other measures instead. I want to talk to you about the energy sector in particular. It's obviously very relevant for, for Texas in particular. You've talked about bankruptcies from some of the smaller, highly leveraged players. Can you give us a sense of proportion? How many small businesses in this sector are you fearful that we lose? So let's try it this way. Um, in December of 2019, U.S. Mm. energy, U.S. oil production was 12.8 million barrels a day. We think it'll end the year at 10.8. The Permian will shrink by as much as a million barrels a day. So if that's true, it means a bunch of wells are being shut in by producers. It means those who provide services to those producers have less business. Uh, a number of them are highly leveraged. And many of them are going to be either go bankrupt or need to be restructured. And so the scale, though, the best way to talk about the scale is just an absolute production, which is actually going to you know, have a meaningful decline. And you're seeing meaningful shut-ins right now. And all that has a ripple effect through the entire sector. Is it It'll right? work its way through eventually. 
It'll work its way through, by the way, eventually. And by somewhere in the end of 2021, we think we might actually work off the excess inventory, but it will take a long time. That's just one component of the economy, the energy sector. The Federal right. Reserve, Congress cannot save everybody. They cannot save all businesses of all shapes and sizes. How many businesses do you think we lose as a result of this staggered approach that we're talking about to reopening? It goes back to your point about the unemployment rate. So we, we will lose some businesses. I mean, the, the nature of, the, of capitalism is that businesses emerge and businesses fail. Jobs are gained, jobs are lost, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of jobs in a, in a given year. Uh, but it's clear that in some of these uh, sectors that are particularly sensitive to consumer behavior and consumer uh, confidence in, in the health effects, uh, we're going to lose a number of restaurants, service sector businesses, others that despite the help just may, may have even been marginal before going into this and don't make it through. Uh, and, and a lot of it, again, will be correlated to which sectors are most sensitive to the prevalence of this disease. And uh, people are just nervous about, uh, about frequenting those businesses. I think you'll see more failures and closures in those sectors. As a result of what you've just said, should more priority be given to tackling the health crisis, spending in the form of testing, tracing, in addition to tackling the stabilization of the economy in the interim? Do you worry that not yes. enough attention is being given to the health crisis that we face? Well, I put it more positively. A lot of attention has been given, but, but I put it more in a more positive way. Uh, Drug development, vaccine development, testing, contact tracing are essential, essential to uh, the consumer being able to act with confidence, people being able to go back to work with confidence, and will accelerate the reopening of the economy. So investing in, in all these health care uh, uh, measures is, is money well spent and is probably the highest return investment we could be making right now. I like the positive spin. Thank you for that. Robert Kaplan, right. President and Thanks. the CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Great to have you with us, sir, and thank you for your perspective. All right. All right. Good to talk to you. Next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. stocks are open for trade this Tuesday. You can have a look at what we're seeing, and it's a higher open around uh, five-tenths of a percent higher, as you can see, for the Dow. After Monday's mixed session, investors in the meantime awaiting Dr. Anthony Fauci's Senate testimony at the top of the next hour. His thoughts on how to get the U.S. economy up and running safely again will help drive sentiment, I think, today, particularly if he's warning that we may be going too quickly. In the meantime, the United States rushing $11 billion in new aid to states to help them ramp up testing measures. This of key importance as more Americans begin heading back to work. It comes as more and more companies say their operations may have seen the worst. Toyota says sales could be back to 90% of normal levels by the end of the year. The CEO of hotel chain Marriott, meanwhile, says negative trends, quote, have bottomed in much of the world. And he says business is improving in China. We like those uh, positive signs. 
Meantime, the price of Bitcoin rising against the US dollar this morning after the third halving in the currency's 11-year history. Halving means the number of Bitcoins earned by coin miners is half what it was before. It's a measure to limit supply going forward. Hedge fund manager, meanwhile, Paul Tudor-Jones has been boosting Bitcoin's credibility as an asset. He revealed he holds it as a possible hedge against inflation. Joining us now is Mike Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. Mike, great to have you on the show this morning. I want to talk about halving and what that means going forward, but Paul Tudor-Jones for me was quite a wow moment. He's not holding it on his personal account. He's holding it within his hedge fund. What does that mean to you as a signal, perhaps, of acceptability going forward? Yeah, listen, it's a huge deal. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people, yeah. I've known a lot of people that have bought it personally, but wouldn't put it on their funds because it created career risk or look stupid risk. And all of a sudden, you know, Paul is, is one of the greats, right? He's been around for 30 odd years. Uh, you can put him up in the in the pantheon with Stan Druckenmiller and Lewis Bacon really as the kind of the lords of macro. And, you know, when he's putting this in and writing about it and writing very articulately about it, it opens up the, the fields for anyone else who feels like they want to participate in Bitcoin. Um, and so I think it's a very big deal. You know, we're slowly getting adoption. Uh, today, JP Morgan and said they would both Coinbase and Gemini. Uh, that's a huge change from where they were two, three years ago. Yes, just trying to uh, price what you said is the look stupid risk here, which is um, a very interesting way to put it. Talk to me about the halving as well and the impact that's likely to have, because if it means that miners get less reward in terms of Bitcoin, do they go mine something else? But that equilibrium, to find an equilibrium, will surely take some time. Well, listen, there's two. The technical side of it is really simple. It's just less selling pressure, right? right. So they're less... Miners have less points to sell and so less supply. Uh, the story though, right, Bitcoin is a story. And right now we have this amazing tailwind because of the macro situation globally, right? We've got quantitative easing on top of quantitative easing, uh, uh, on top of quantitative easing all over the world, not just here in the US. Uh, today, the Fed is gonna start buying, you know, ETFs. Uh, and so on the flip side, the having is really quantitative tightening. And so you've got this exclamation point on the on the, the story of what a scarce asset does, you know, what a monetary system with scarcity looks like vis-a-vis -vis, uh, or in contrast to what the Fed is doing. And so it really is just this perfect timing really for what looks like a macro story that people are thinking, I should have one to 2% of my portfolio in this Bitcoin because the probability or possibility that things go really poorly uh, with classic monetary, fiat monetary policy is rising. So just to an investor who has never invested in crypto before, you're just saying, look, the, the risk reward here of simply having even just one or two percent invested of your money in crypto assets like Bitcoin is you know that your downside is it goes to zero, your upside potentially limitless in a world where there's lots of money printing going on. Yeah. You know, the one thing I learned both in 1997 back in the Asian crisis hmm. and then in 08 is when you have these paradigm shifts, uh, things happen that you don't think could happen. Like who would have thought oil could have traded negative? 
uh, but it did, or swap spreads could go negative. We, before 08, we didn't think swap spreads could go negative. And so with the kind of fiscal response that we're getting, and I think we're going to continue to get, and I'll get to that in a second, um, the dollar as a reserve currency, no one thought it was really at risk for 10, 15 years. That could change. Um, listen, coming out of 08, we had a lot of these same conversations, not around Bitcoin, but around gold, right? It was going to be the great inflation. And instead, we got a decade of deflation. Uh, the one thing I think is a little different is the response that came out of 08 politically was this fringe party called the Tea Party that said, no, 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 Mr. Obama, you can't spend any more of our money. And so we had this long tension of the Fed having to do a lot because fiscal wouldn't do anything. Well, listen, Donald Trump swallowed and, and spat out the Tea Party, right? They don't exist. Uh, there is no fiscal conservativeness on the Republican side. And the, the fringe party, if you want to call them fringe, that's coming out of this movement, looking at the, the, the rich, poor gap, the inequality gap, quite frankly, is, is AOC. It's yeah, the, on the it's left. The pocket. Yeah. And so I just think, you know, right now we're, we've got an extra $600, you know, for unemployment insurance out of the federal. It feels pretty good if you're unemployed to be making $25 an hour. Uh, is it going to be pay off the college debt? Is it going to be free college? And so now that the fiscal doors are blown wide open, I think we're going to have a hard time closing those barn doors this time. And so, you know, we could just have this giant fiscal orgy uh, monetized by the Fed that's harder to stop. And that's where you get the kind of first we're going to have a deflation where you can really get the debasement of our, our currency. You raised so many important points there, but I, I want to hone in on something that you said about the stimulus checks, because it's something that I, I picked up with Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed. You recently tweeted that you think household income in the United States could actually be up this year, even if we have 25 percent unemployment because of the bumped up and extended unemployment benefits and the stimulus checks. Do you really think that? He said he thinks it will be net negative, but you think actually household income could hold up really well. It matters for recovery. It certainly does. Listen, I read that from some research shop, uh, so I probably should have double-checked it before it. I okay. when tweeting it. Um, but if you think <laughs> about it, right, the, the living wage in America is $16, right? 85% of workers that work in big box retail, so that's Home Depot, Lowe's, Target, make less than the living wage, right? They make um, roughly $13 an hour. The entire fast food industry roughly makes $13 an hour. That's the average. Uh, and right now, you know, if you're unemployed and you come from one of those jobs, um, a good portion of the 30 million people that are unemployed are not coming from high-end jobs. Uh, you're getting $25 an hour plus a $1,200 stimulus on top of that. Now, that's only lasting to July, and we'll see. What does Congress do? Do they extend it or not? Um, but right now, you know, the numbers do add up. And it's actually, if you look at the amount of retail buying in the stock market and the, the buying on things like Robinhood, and, you know, there's lots of money being put to work even in the stock market. It's interesting. But this is a retail-led rally stocks. And it was... I should point out you tied it to the retail demand for Bitcoin too very quickly because we have about 10 seconds before I get yelled at. What's your price target on Bitcoin by year end? I, I think we, we at least touched the old highs, 20,000, if not higher. Wow. Mike, great Never to talk to you. Yes, I can tell. <laughs> Mike Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. All right. 
people in Hong Kong are now free to go to the movies, sweat it out at the gym and relax at bars, partly thanks to new tracking technologies. We'll discuss how it works next. Welcome back to First Move. A Russian president, Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, is in hospital with coronavirus. Russian state media reports Dmitry Peskov is currently in treatment after testing positive for the virus. Peskov said he last saw Putin over a month ago. Meanwhile, the fire at hospital in Russia has killed five COVID-19 patients. Officials in St. Petersburg say all five of the dead were connected to a ventilator. The exact cause of the fire is under investigation. According to John Hopkins University, Russia has now more than 230,000 coronavirus cases. That's the second highest in the world after the United States. Hong Kong, meanwhile, has further eased social distancing rules after successfully battling a second wave of coronavirus cases. The city is pioneering tracking technology using wristbands that ensure visitors follow quarantine restrictions. Joining us now is Victor Lam, Hong Kong's chief information officer. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show and to talk to you once again. By far, the lion's share of the cases that you were discovering were coming from Travelers, people coming into Hong Kong. Talk to me about the, how mm-hmm. the wristband technology works, because I know it was about tracking quarantine adherence. Yes, uh, currently uh, disposable electronic wristbands are being used in pair with the Stay Home Safe mobile app to monitor people under quarantine. The wristbands and mobile app are local innovations that are modified to address the specific needs of Hong Kong in supporting home quarantine arrangements. To ensure that the people under quarantine have the wristbands on at all time, the mobile app will continuously detect the signal of the wristband and send random requests to the confinee to scan the QR code of the wristband. Uh, We also have spot checks to uh, to be conducted by our staff of our control centers via video calls. It's fantastic technology that you're using here in order to try and make sure that people that are coming in are remaining in quarantine for a given period. Just tie that to the efforts that you're making in Hong Kong to reopen. Where are you now in terms of phasing reopening? In fact, different solutions are being used in different places all over the world to monitor people under quarantine. Uh, In Hong Kong, uh, geofencing technology has been adopted uh, as we ad- uh, attach very great importance to privacy protection while we want to balance the effectiveness in monitoring. So, of course, GPS allows detection of signals, but only in two dimensions. And it's not reliable in a city crowded with high-rise buildings like Hong Kong. On the other hand, uh, geofencing technology detects signal changes up and down the floors and it allows a three-dimensional tracking of the confinees without sacrificing their privacy since no no exact location or their movement will be detected. As in the case of GPS, we are still in the quarantine period, so we are still monitoring people uh, under quarantine. As at now, over 170,000 people arriving in Hong Kong had already undergone home quarantine by the various technologies we adopted. And over 90,000 use different versions of our wristbands. 
it's fantastic. It's, um, again, technology that other nations around the world could certainly look to and, and perhaps look to utilize going forward. Victor, I think one of the one of the concerns as we watch Hong Kong is that as the as the region begins to open up and we see people acting to some degree, finding a new normal, that we see a return to the protests that that we were talking about in, in Davos earlier this year. How worried mm-hmm. are the authorities about a return to protests and, and what measures do you have in place to try and control that for, for health and safety reasons beyond anything else? Uh, in fact, we uh, we uh, attach very great importance to privacy protection when we use the wristbands. And we also want to lessen the inconvenience brought to the people under quarantine. So our electronic wristbands are made to be waterproof and have been improved over time to become lighter in weight and smaller in size. Now, this is our current version of the wristband. Uh, it is of the size and weight of a watch and can be removed and disposed of by the confinees direct upon completion of the quarantine period. So it's very easy to use. And for those who do not possess a smartphone, we will lend one to them for monitoring purpose and collect the devices afterwards. It's going to be fascinating to watch the progress. Victor Lam, sir, fantastic to have you on the show with us. And uh, stay safe and good luck with the technology. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Break here on First Move. The risks of reopening too fast and too slow. Richard Quest is on the countdown as we await testimony from Dr. Fauci. Next. Welcome back to First Move, where we're moments away now from testimony in the U.S. Senate from infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's expected to warn there could be, quote, needless suffering and death if the U.S. reopens too soon. Richard Quest joins us now. Richard, great to see you, and uh, thank you for holding the fort yesterday on the show. I mentioned <laughs> earlier anytime, on... Anytime, <laughs> Thank you. I mentioned earlier on that it feels like... Um, we're trying to slam the barn doors after the horses have bolted as more and more states get cracking with opening. The warning here from Dr. Fauci is apt, but late. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the country, it doesn't matter the time, the issue remains the same. As Fauci put it some weeks ago, at what point, what price are we prepared to pay? And it would seem that the United States is prepared to pay a higher, some say much higher price in terms of death and cases versus the economy. This is, uh, you know, Mario, uh, sorry, um, Governor Cuomo, I keep getting calling him as his father, of course, Andrew, I'm that old, Andrew Cuomo says again and again, it's a, it's a false choice, but it is a choice that is being made. On the one hand, it is the number of deaths. On the other side of the scale, the cost to the economy. And what price are we prepared to pay? That's what we're looking at tonight on Quest Means Business. And you see it today. You'll hear it in Fauci's testimony today. It is the subject that every country is looking at. I know you're doing a special on it tonight. I think this is going to be a vitally yeah. important discussion. But to, to your point, if it's a balance between what the price of life is in order to restart an economy, you have to be responsible with that. And that requires testing, tracing, analyzing, making sure that you're at least reducing the amount of people that are put at risk as a result. And we're just not there. 
that the testing and the tracing is a promise that leaders are making and they're hoping to they're hoping to reverse it into the plan yes. afterwards rather than put it in place forward the truth is it's about how much we're prepared to pay yeah it makes sense but president trump actually and this is a critical point of one ceo that's been pushing authorities in his county. And we talked again at Elon Musk yeah. earlier on this show. Well, President Trump has now tweeted and said Elon Musk should be allowed to reopen his plant now. It can be done fast and safely. So even at the highest level in the country, you've got the battle between states, between local authorities, between the White House over how this should be efficiently, safely handled. Is that mutually exclusive, efficiently <laughs> and safely? Can you have both, opening and safety at the same time? You can if you've got testing and tracing, Richard. <laughs> Car before the horse. <laughs> exactly. They've already left. We're trying, Richard. Yeah. Thank you so much. And really looking forward to the show. I'll, uh, I'll tease your guests for you as well as Dr. Fauci warns about Thank the you. cost of prematurely reopening economies. Tune in later, as Richard mentioned, for a special edition of Quest Means Business. Richard will be joined by Gary Cohn, Mohammed El Arian, Paul Krugman and Jim Yong Kim. Wow. An all-star cast for a debate on the true cost of reopening the global economy. That's at 8 p.m. London time. Do not miss it. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. But that's it for the show for now. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.